This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. Grab your Bible, turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter number 11, if you would. Continue our series entitled Better Together. If you have the Hui Kala app, you can actually download the notes for today's message and follow along that way if you want to. Click on podcast, uh, click on today's message, uh, and then uh, click on the button that says fill in notes. It'll open a web browser. You can type your notes in that. Or you can actually download a PDF to your device and use it that way, whatever you do. Uh, Take some good notes today as we uh, uh, go through this passage of Scripture where we look at the Lord's Supper. This is a continuation of last week's message. We'll have a little bit of a recap at the beginning and then jump into the uh, remainder of what we wanted to get through last week but did not have the chance to. So if you missed last week's messages, uh, last week's message, you can get caught up through our app or through our website. That's kind of, this is part two uh, of that. Next week, we're going to take a look at church history and why that's so important to us as Bible-believing Christians. Uh, and then in just a couple of weeks, we're going to kick off our, our brand new series entitled Magnify Jesus, where we take a look at the book of Philippians together, verse by verse. And so uh, thanks for being here today. We're delighted to have you with us. Uh, let's jump into today's message. 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, as we take a look at the Lord's Supper. Now, Paul was writing to the church at Corinth. They had... Um, basically made a mockery of what was supposed to be a holy moment of the Lord's Supper. It turned into a really kind of an alcohol-fueled, raucous party. Uh, and, uh, and Paul says, nope, this needs to stop. Here's how we observe the Lord's Supper, and here's how we remember Jesus together. So uh, this, today's message is honoring Jesus in the Lord's Supper week two. And so if you missed last week, again, get caught up on our website. First Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse number 23. For I have received of the Lord that which I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is, my, is the New Testament in my blood. This do you as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat of this bread and drink of this cup unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and let him so eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. This cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. For when we are judged, we're chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry one for another. If any man hunger, let him eat at home, that you come not together unto condemnation. And the rest will I set in order when I come. When we talk about the Lord's Supper, it's important to understand that that we need to define terms because terms are really important. Uh, We as Bible-believing Christians do not practice what are called sacraments. Uh, The term sacrament is a way that one receives grace. Uh, And so certain churches uh, believe that these sacraments will give us grace, whether it's being baptized will give us the grace of salvation or uh, by receiving the Lord's Supper will give us the grace of uh, maybe Christian strength or or closeness to Christ and things along those lines. We don't look at them as sacraments because the Bible doesn't. We refer to these as ordinances. They're things that Jesus ordained for us to follow. And Jesus gave us two ways to remember and honor him. 
Uh, the first ordinance that he gave us was baptism. Uh, Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist as a way to show us what it looked like to be baptized. In addition to that, Jesus uh, told us in the Great Commission to go, win, baptize, and teach. And so by being baptized, we're identifying first and foremost with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're identifying together with other believers who have also been baptized and followed Jesus in obedience to being baptized. We're also identifying with a body of doctrine saying we believe that God's word is true and want to follow it to the letter in our lives. And we make Jesus Christ the Lord of our lives and by being baptized, it's in obedience to his command. The second ordinance, the thing that Jesus ordained for the local New Testament church to uh, gather together as a way to remember and honor him was what we refer to as the Lord's Supper. Uh, the Lord's Supper has uh, several different names that one could call it by, but it's basically a time to remember Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for us. Uh, the very first Lord's Supper took place during the feast of the Passover. And so Jesus, during the feast of the Passover, gathered his apostles together in an upper room, and they had what we sometimes refer to as the Last Supper, but it was really the first Lord's Supper uh, during this time of the, the Passover feast. Now, the feast of the Passover was a time to remember when God had led the children of Israel out of Egypt. Uh, the, the time of the Passover was the 10th plague that had taken place. God told Moses, I want you to lead my children out of Egypt. We took a look at last week how there were probably about 1 million Jews that belonged to God that were in slavery to the Egyptians. God told Moses, go tell Pharaoh to set my people free. He's not gonna listen to you right off the bat. You're gonna have to be patient. You're gonna have to allow me to do my work, but eventually Pharaoh will let my people go. So plague after plague took place. The 10th plague, though, would be the final plague, where God says the firstborn of every household will die tonight. I'm gonna send the death angel to pass over Egypt. And the firstborn of every household die, and the Bible said they did, from Pharaoh's house, the king, to the prisoner in the dungeon, to the cattle in the field, the firstborn of every single family died. Unless there was the blood of a lamb that was placed on the doorpost of the house. And so God says, I want you to take a lamb without spot, without blemish. I want you to cut its throat. I want you to take its blood. I want you to smear it on the doorposts so that when the death angel comes over Egypt, he's gonna look at the houses with the blood over the doorposts and he's going to pass over them. So we see during the Exodus, the flight from Egypt, the blood of a spotless lamb was to be applied to the doorposts to the home. And at midnight, the death angel would take the firstborn of each household unless the blood was upon the doorposts. You and I have the privilege of reading the Bible backwards now because we know how this all plays out. We know how this works out. We know who Jesus is and what he's done for us. We have the privilege of being able to look back at the Passover and say the lamb without spot and blemish was Jesus Christ. That blood that was placed on the doorpost was the blood of Jesus Christ. The death angel that came was actually God's judgment upon sin in the world and judgment passed over the house of all those whose blood was applied to the doorpost. This is a picture of you and I, how judgment was coming for us. Death is coming for every man. And the Bible says that death is coming for us because we have sinned. That the wages of sin, what you've earned as a result of your sin is death. And it's coming for every person. And the death that we die will be the payment for our sins unless... Someone can die in our place, and Jesus came and died on the cross to pay for my sin and yours. 
Jesus became that blood that was applied to the doorpost of our heart that when death comes, God sees the blood of Jesus Christ applied to our life and he passes over because my sin has been cleansed by that blood. So you and I have the privilege of looking back at the Passover and going, wow, what a beautiful picture of Jesus. But I think the Jews during that time were just like, okay, a lamb it is, and blood it is. We'll follow after what God says, just like he says, and we won't die tonight. But we have the privilege of looking back at that and how it really was just set up for Christ and point towards Christ's coming. You see, the Passover feast was a time for the Jews to remember that. The Passover feast was a remembrance of God's liberation of the children of Israel and the slavery of Egypt. Because God knows that we forget really, really easily. That's why I always encourage you to take notes because we forget what we learn really, really easily. God says, I want you once a year to have a feast. I want you to teach your children why we eat this feast and what it means. God told them in Exodus chapter 13, verse number 14, it shall be when thy son asketh thee in time to come, saying, what is this? Thou shalt say to him, by the strength of the hand of the Lord brought us out from Egypt, from the house of bondage. You see, the uh, feast of the Passover would have four different cups that were taken at four different times throughout the meal. There would be a roasted lamb that would be prepared for the actual meal where they would eat this lamb that had been sacrificed and slaughtered for its blood. They would pass around a, the, the cup of red wine, which was symbolic of the blood of this animal that was shed for them. In addition to that, they would have unleavened bread that they would take. There was a picture of their flight out of Egypt. And, and, and the, the fathers were responsible for telling their children, son, this is why we're eating this bread tonight. Son, this is why we're drinking this cup tonight because we were slaves in Egypt and God brought us out. You see, it wouldn't be very long after they had been led out of Egypt that everyone died and nobody remembered anymore. After the children of Israel were led out of Egypt, 40 years and then most of the adults had died off by then. So God says, I want you to remember by having a feast every single year to remember what I've done for you. This is important because the Lord's Supper is a time for us as Christians to remember what God has done for us in the same way that it was for the Jews. This Passover meal was only for the Jews, God's chosen people. God told Abraham, I want to do something special for you. And God made a covenant with Abraham. He says, I'm going to give you three things. I'm going to give you a land so that wherever your foot treads, that land is yours. I'm going to give you a people that's going to come from you. You and your wife are far past childbearing years, but from your seed, I'm going to build a great nation so that it'll be so great that the number of stars in the sky won't even hold a candle to your people give you land I'm gonna give you a seed and from you Abraham every single human being that ever walks the face of this planet will be blessed because of you so a land a seed and a blessing and that blessing that everyone would be blessed in Abraham comes from the fact that the Messiah Jesus Christ would come from Abraham's bloodline Jesus Christ would be born from the bloodline of Abraham. That's why if you look at the Gospels and, and Matthew, how it traces back Jesus Christ's lineage. Sometimes people get to the lineages in the Bible and they're like, oh, so-and-so begets so-and-so who begets so-and-so who begets so-and-so. 
That was really important because it was tracing Jesus all the way back to Abraham. It was the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham. And so God says, I'm going to do something special through you, Abraham. And God took the children of Israel, the Jews, and made them his people. There wasn't anything special about the Jews. Actually, the thing that attracted God to the Jews was the fact that they were small in number and they were nobodies. But God says, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. And to this day, it's important that we as Bible-believing Christians are friendly towards Israel because they still have God's hand of blessing upon them. They're very small, but that land that they have was given to them by God himself. And so we don't have the right to determine who gets that or who doesn't. That's God's people's land. And while the Jews have rejected Christ as Messiah and they'll stand before God on judgment day and be judged for that, and Jews don't get an automatic ticket to heaven because they're God's chosen people, they still get the same way to heaven through, like everybody else through faith and repentance in Jesus. But God has his hand upon Israel in a special way and always will. That's why it's important for us as a, a people to be on the side of Israel because you're being on the side of God. But through this time, God says, I'm gonna lead you out of Egypt and I want you to remember me and what I've done for you through this feast, but this feast is not for anybody but my people. If you have a friend visiting from out of town, they're not allowed to take this feast with you. If you have somebody who's doing some work for you around the house, they're not allowed to take this feast with you. This is for my people. But, he said, if you have a servant who belongs to you that lives in your house, they can be circumcised and be placed under God's authority and then they can receive that feast as well. So, you take someone who is not a Jew who's willing to submit themselves to God's authority and God says, I'll receive you, I'll accept you. If you haven't connected the dots yet, this is a picture of how you and I were not Jews. We were not God's chosen people. But God told us, if you're willing to repent of your sin and place yourself under my authority, I'll adopt you into my family and you can be a part of what I've got going on here. And now God's special, set apart, chosen people who he's chosen to put his hand of blessing upon to be their, their God and they will be his people is now us as Bible-believing Christians. Those who would put their faith and trust in Jesus are now the elect of God, the Bible tells us. So we now have a special place of significance. Now we can receive the Lord's Supper, but by the same token, the Lord's Supper is only for Christians. If you have a friend who's visiting from out of town who's not a Christian, they're not allowed to take the Lord's Supper. But those who are willing to be adopted into God's family by submission to his authority and repentance of sin, now they can be a child of God and they too can receive this. So it's important to understand that this Passover meal was only for the Jews, God's chosen people. By the same token, the Lord's Supper is only for Bible-believing Christians, now God's chosen people as well. During this Passover meal, they would take the unleavened bread, and they would eat that during their meal. The unleavened bread was a picture of the flight from Egypt. In the middle of the night, when the death angel had passed over, the Bible said the death angel came at midnight and that the people awoke in the middle of the night. All of Egypt awoke to find the firstborn child in their home had been killed in the middle of the night. And Pharaoh, in the middle of the night, told Moses and the children of Israel, get out. 
you got to go. You can't wait till morning. You can't get your stuff together. Just go. And the Bible says they took what they had with them and they left. They didn't have any food to take on their journey. They had bread, which they hadn't applied the yeast and the leaven to yet. And so they just took this dough with them because they didn't know what to do with it. The Bible says in uh, Exodus chapter 12, verse number 39, they baked unleavened cakes of dough, which they brought forth out of Egypt. For it's not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not tarry, neither had they prepared for themselves any victual. So they don't have anything to eat. They're thrust out into the wilderness in the middle of the night. The only thing they have is, is baskets of dough. They don't even have any leaven in them, haven't risen. So in the wilderness, they bake these unleavened cakes that they eat. And when that ran out, the children of Israel cried and says, God, we need help. We're starving out here. And God from heaven gave them food to eat in the wilderness every single day called manna. If you tried to hoard it and keep it a few days worth overnight, you wake up the next morning, it had maggots, it was rotten and it stunk. You had to throw it out. You could only take what you needed for each day, except for the Sabbath day, the day before the Sabbath. You could take twice as much so that you didn't have to work on the Sabbath. So God provided for them day by day. You and I again have the privilege of looking back and say, what was that unleavened bread in the wilderness? It was all they had to eat but it was all that they needed to eat. Jesus Christ is a picture of the unleavened bread. They left slavery with nothing in their hands, with nothing to sustain them day by day, but Jesus was there for us and he was enough. We take a look at manna and how God provided day by day for his people the sustenance that they needed to make it through each day. And we see how God has provided Jesus Christ for us and the daily grace that we need, God's undeserved, unmerited favor day by day to give us everything that we need for every single day. And again, we have the privilege of looking back in the Bible and seeing how Jesus Christ for us is our provision day by day. So the unleavened bread that they would eat during the feast of the Passover was a picture of how they had to leave in the middle of the night with this baskets of dough and couldn't cook it. Next, the cup that they drank represented the blood of the Passover lamb. This lamb without spot or blemish that was sacrificed so that they could smear blood across their doorposts. The cup that they drank was a picture of that wine. It would have been a sin for them to drink actual blood because in the Old Testament, part of the Levitical laws, they were not allowed to, to eat or drink anything that had blood in it. And so it would have been a sin for them to actually take actual blood and drink it. So they used uh, red wine or even grape juice to signify the blood of the Passover lamb. Exodus chapter 12, verse number 23 says, For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians when he seeth the blood on the lintel and the two side posts. The Lord will pass over the door, will not suffer the destroyer to come into the house to smite you. So imagine, if you will, a dad sitting down with his family and says, all right, gang, tonight we're taking the meal of the Passover. This bread that we're gonna eat is a reminder of how God led our ancestors out, our forefathers out in the middle of the night. All they had to take with them was this unleavened bread, and we eat this bread to remember that God set us free in the middle of the night and liberated us. So, kids, when we drink this cup tonight, I want you to remember that God called us to take a lamb. Our forefathers 
bled out this lamb and took its blood and put it upon the doorpost because at midnight the death angel came and when he saw that blood, he passed over our ancestors and none of us died. Every single house in Egypt experienced death that night except for ours because that blood was on the doorpost. And so kids, when you drink that cup, I want you to remember how good God's been to us. I want you to remember how he, we were once slaves in Egypt, but God let us out of that. I want you to remember the feast of the Passover. So it's important to understand too that the Passover meal itself had no supernatural power, but it was a time to reflect, to remember, and to praise. Reflect, remember, praise. There was nothing supernatural or mystical that took place during the, fa- the feast of the Passover. There were no incantation or chants that took place. There was no, nothing special or magical that took place in this unleavened bread or the, uh, the, the wine in the cup. There's nothing unique about it. It was just a time to remember. It wasn't mystical. It wasn't magical. It was just a holy, reverent moment to say, hey, God's been good to us. And I hope you, from time to time, have time to sit and think about how good God's been to you. Just with a heart of spirit, a spirit of gratitude, a heart of worship. God, you've been so good to me. You've brought me from so much sin to so much love in you. God, you brought me out of slavery to my sin to freedom in Jesus Christ. I hope we can remember that. The Passover meal is the time to do that. But the Lord's Supper, Jesus took this Jewish custom and transformed it into a beautiful way to remember and honor Jesus. The Bible says the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. He says, hey, fellas, gather around. This bread, and I can't, I can't imagine the apostles having the Passover meal with Jesus. They'd had it dozens of times in their life. And Jesus says, hey guys, this bread, and I can imagine them going, yeah, yeah, we know what the bread represents, the flight from Egypt, yeah, we got that. And Jesus says, this, this bread is my body, which is broken for you, given for you. And from here on out, when you eat this bread, I want you to do it in remembrance of me. Wait, what? Yeah. Notice Jesus didn't say anything about the flight from Egypt. Jesus didn't say anything about the Passover lamb. Jesus didn't say anything about blood on doorposts. Jesus says, from here on out, when you eat this bread, I don't want you to remember the flight from Egypt. I want you to remember me. And Jesus started something that hasn't stopped for 2,000 years. Jesus says, this cup represents, yeah, 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 the blood of the Passover lamb. No, this cup represents my blood, which is shed for you. And as often as you drink that cup, I want you to do it in remembrance of me. No mention here whatsoever of the actual Passover meal. No mention here of the flight from Egypt, no no mention of the Passover lamb. It's all about Jesus now. And we take this beautiful picture that I imagine even the apostles as they sit there going, well, how does the bread represent your body? How does the blood represent your blood? What does that actually mean? 
the richness of it wouldn't fully be realized until I believe the next time that they broke bread together that we find in Acts chapter two, after Peter preaches the gospel and many people are saved and baptized and the Bible says they continue steadfastly in the apostles and doctrine and breaking of bread. Oh guys, this is our chance to remember Jesus and what he did. And they don't have to wait for the feast of the Passover to come. They can actually remember Jesus anytime that they choose to. See, this unleavened bread was now a symbol of the body of Jesus. Again, how Jesus Christ is everything that we need to be delivered from slavery. He's what we took in the middle of the night when we were being led out of slavery. The day that you accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, you were led out of slavery of your sin to the freedom that was found in Jesus Christ. And the only thing that you took with you was Jesus. Your sin was left behind. Your old you was left behind. The only thing that you took in the middle of the night was Jesus. This is a picture of that. Leaven in the Bible also often is used as a symbol for sin. And the unleavened bread was a picture of the sinless, spotless perfection of Jesus Christ. And how he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And now when we receive the Lord's Supper and we take that bread, we remember that Jesus gave his body to be offered up as a sacrifice. The Bible says his body is a, was offered up as a propitiation for our sins. Or propitiation is a beautiful word. Not only means atoning sacrifice, but it also calls back to the Old Testament. Again, the Old Testament, there would be the Day of Atonement, which is Jews still celebrate to this day, called Yom Kippur. The Day of Atonement was the day where the sins of the people would be paid for symbolically. The priest would go into the temple and offer up upon the altar the sins of the people symbolically. You would take two animals. One would be a spotless, perfect lamb and the other one would be a goat. The lamb would have its throat slit and its blood poured out over the altar symbolically covering the sins of all of the people. Then the sins of the people would be symbolically placed upon the goat. And the goat would be sent out of the city into the wilderness, never to be seen again. So the sins of the people were placed upon this goat and the goat was sent out into the wilderness, never to be seen again. And the goat was referred to as the escape goat. Where we get our term, scapegoat. And so I can imagine them saying like, we're letting a perfectly good goat run out in the middle of the wilderness never to be seen again. Can we not get that goat back? Can we have somebody walk it to the edge of town and walk it back? Why does it have to leave and never return? Why do we have to kill this lamb to bleed it out over the altar? Can't we just like, I don't know, cut its foot and bleed out a little bit over there? No. You know why? Because it's all a picture of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. And that word propitiation means satisfactory covering. And it's a picture of how in the Old Testament, word propitiation is a picture in the Old Testament of how they would bleed out this animal to cover the sins of the people, but Jesus became the blood covering for our sins. Jesus became the day of atonement lamb. And he suffered and bled and died. Cover our sins. You need to know what the word propitiation means because it's rich. 
That's why I, I struggle with Bible versions that dumb it down. Just call it, you know, atoning sacrifice. No, it's richer than that. Propitiation is a good Bible word. You need to know what it means and you need to know what it's a picture of. And then praise Jesus. My sin was placed upon him and he bore it. The Bible says he was crucified outside the gate of this city. And my sin, when it left, it went out into the wilderness and I haven't seen it again. And the Bible says if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I'm thankful that Jesus Christ became the scapegoat and the sinless Lamb of God to not only bleed and pay for my sins and to cover them forever, but to take it as far as the east is from the west so that God remembers them no more. Oh man, rich picture that you and I get the opportunity to see. So the... Unleavened bread is a picture of the body of Jesus Christ that was broken for us. The cup is now a picture of the blood of Jesus Christ. Again, blood had to be shed. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin, the Bible tells us. Have you ever thought about this? If Jesus died of like a heart attack, you and I would still be in our sin. If Jesus died of old age, we still need a savior. But because Jesus suffered and bled and died, we are forgiven, and that blood is a covering for our sin. What can wash away my sin, the song says? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so as we take the Lord's Supper and we take that little bitty cup full of grape juice, we remember that it's the blood of Jesus that saved me from my sin. That Jesus didn't have to die, he willingly died. He didn't have to be crucified, he chose to be crucified. God knew that somebody had to die to pay for our sins and Jesus says, I'll go. And the Lord's Supper is an opportunity for us to remember that this blood of Jesus was shed for us. Now, what do we call this time of contemplation? What do we do as we look at this time and what names do we have for it? And different churches call it by different names and one's not necessarily better than the other. All three of them are biblical words that are used to describe it. For us as a church, we use the term the Lord's Supper. In our passage here, verse number 20, he talks about a time where people would get together and, and some people would get drunk and other people were uh, eating and other people didn't have anything to eat. And he says, when you come together and eat, that is not the Lord's table or the Lord's supper. He says, the Lord's supper is this. And he goes on in verse number 23 to tell us what the Lord's supper looks like. So for us at who we call it, we call it the Lord's supper. Other people might call it communion or the Lord's table. That's okay too. Those are all Bible descriptions of this. Another name for this time of contemplation, of remembering what Jesus Christ has done for us would be the Lord's table. Just a little bit earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter number 10, verse number 21, it says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be takers, partakers of the Lord's table and the table of devils. So here he says the Lord's table is available for those who are willing to, first of all, be saved and submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Secondly, are willing to live a life in accordance with God's commands. 
but you cannot live for the world and live for Jesus at the same time. You cannot be a partaker of the cup of devils and be the cup of the Lord at the same time. You can't take the Lord's table and take the devil's table at the same time. You got to pick a side. And so this time of contemplation is a time to think, whose side am I on? Whose table am I feasting at? Whose supper am I receiving? Whose cup am I drinking from? And so the Lord's table is another word for it. The word communion is another biblical term for that. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse number 16, the cup of blessing which we bless. Is it not communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? The word communion means fellowship, fellowship with God, fellowship with other Christians, fellowship with Christ, fellowship. And if you remember from a few weeks ago, that word fellowship means community. Community with the body of Christ, community with the blood of Christ. Or community, the things that we share in common. So this time of communion is a time to remember the body and blood of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what you call it necessarily as long as you practice it. Now, some people who come from different church backgrounds might ask the question, well, what is the Eucharist? When do we take the Eucharist? When do, when do we uh, receive Mass? Things along those lines. It's a great question. The word Eucharist on its, uh, on its surface doesn't seem like a bad word. The word Eucharist uh, comes from, from Greek, Latin. Uh, the word Eucharist literally means gave thanks or to give thanks. It's a biblical idea, this idea of giving thanks, because the Bible says that when Jesus took the cup, he gave thanks and then he told him to drink it. When he took the, the bread, he broke it and he gave thanks. And so on the, the surface, it's not necessarily a bad term. However, the term Eucharist or Mass has been adopted primarily by Catholic and Anglican um, type churches so that we would want to distance ourselves from that because their view of communion and a biblical view of communion couldn't be more different. And so for us, uh, there are many good Bible terms that describe things uh, that we uh, might distance ourselves from. For example, the, we use the title for, of the, the leader and shepherd of a church to be a pastor. It's a Bible word. But another Bible word is also the word elder. Another Bible word is the word bishop. But when we think of the word bishop, we generally don't think of a local church pastor. We generally think of someone in a hierarchy of, of a, a Catholic church or an Anglican church or something along those lines. When we think of the term elder, generally we don't typically think of a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching pastor. We generally think of the guys that ride bicycles who have name tags uh, and wear short-sleeved white shirts with ties. Um, we think of that as an elder. And so cases like that, we just use the term pastor because it differentiates us from, from other folks. But churches who might use the term for a pastor as bishop or elder wouldn't necessarily be wrong, uh, just different. And so somebody who uses the term uh, uh, Lord's Supper, Lord's Table, Communion, not One's not right or wrong or better than the other. They're just different. The term Eucharist generally describes the sacrament of the Eucharist. And again, the word sacrament means a way in which we receive grace. And that's where we run into issues with other churches in the way that they would uh, view the Lord's Supper uh, and use the term Eucharist or Mass for that. Before we jump into this section, I want to be very, very clear I share with you information about what other churches believe because I want you to be a discerning Christian. I want you to believe what you believe because it comes from the Bible, not because your pastor told you so. The reason why you believe something is not because pastor said, it's because God's word says. 
And if the only reason you believe what you believe is because your pastor told you, I'm gonna tell you, go a little bit deeper than that. You need to be in discipleship. You need to learn your Bible. You need to be a discerning Christian. The Bible talks of a group of Christians in Acts chapter 17, verse number 11, the Berean believers. And the Bible says that they were more noble than those in Thessalonica and that they received the word with readiness of heart. They love to hear Bible preaching. They love to hear Bible teaching, but here's what it says about them. And they searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Oh, Paul, that was a great message you gave. Can you show me more about that from the Bible? Oh, Paul, I'm willing to follow Jesus in baptism. Can you show me where I could find that in the Bible? Hey, I'm willing to to open my home up to have a meal. Could you show me how I can do that from the Bible? The Bible says that they were discerning Christians in that way, and that's what I want for you. And so when we jump into this next section, this is not why, uh, you know, every church in the world is wrong and we're right. This is a matter of I want you to know the differences in other religions that are out there. First of all, I want you to know what the Bible says. We've seen that. Last week, we took more in depth at who can receive the Lord's Supper, those that are saved. What happens when we misuse the Lord's Supper? People receive God's judgment. People get sick and people die as a result of it. We took a look at how God views it as a very holy, sacred moment, as a way to remember Jesus. And so we take a look at false views of communion or the Lord's Supper. I want you to understand why we're sharing this. I want you to be discerning. Now, if you're using this as ammo to go to to work tomorrow and argue with somebody, please don't do that. If you're using this just to be smarter than everybody else or the, the guy that knows the most in the room, the Bible says this, knowledge puffs up and it makes you proud. And just know this, pride ruins everything that it touches. So we don't get ammo to be really good at arguing or putting people down. We never mock anybody's faith or make jokes about them or anything like that. It's not a funny thing that people are on their way to hell. It's not a funny thing that people are hoping in a religious system to get them to heaven. That's not funny. It's not funny that people in our city, in our community, in your workplace, on your street, next door to you, are believing in something that takes them to hell, and we're not gonna sit around with a haughty spirit goal. At least we got it right. Also, I wanna preface this by saying, we are not the only Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church in town. And just because somebody doesn't call themselves a Baptist doesn't mean that they're not a Christian. And just because somebody calls themselves a Baptist doesn't mean that they're a Christian. The Bible is the authority on all of that. I don't get to pick out who's a false teaching church and who's not. God's word does the work for us. I don't get to determine whether or not somebody's living a right life according to God's word. God's word does that for them. So I wanna caution you. This is not a moment to thump our chest and talk about how much better we are than other people. This is our opportunity to grow and be a discerning Christian. I want you to know that everything that calls itself Christian is not Christian. I want you to know that every Christian book is not necessarily a Christian book because it says it is. Every song on Christian radio is not Christian because it's on Christian radio. And every person who says that they've been baptized or received the Lord's Supper doesn't mean that they're a Christian. I want you to be discerning in that way. I also want you to understand that Catholics are not Christians. I just said that. I know it's heavy, and some people have gotten really upset with me about for saying that. But and not to say that Catholics cannot be saved, but if you believe what the Catholic Church believes, you cannot be a Christian. Period. If you believe that your baptism saves you, you are not a Christian. If you believe that the Lord's Supper or communion or the Eucharist is the way that you stay in forgiveness with God. You are not a Christian. 
If you believe that your religious works will earn you a spot in heaven, you are not a Christian. Simple as that. And again, I would, I would sit down with any Catholic and go through the catechism of the Catholic Church with them and show them why what they believe is opposed to Scripture. I'm going to share quotes with you that come directly from their doctrinal statement. Not some guy that I knew one time who claimed to be a Catholic. Not something I found on some website or not some YouTube video that I watched. It comes from the catechism of the Catholic Church, what they say about what they believe. And it's, it's critical. First of all, the, the Catholic Church, which refers to their Mass or Holy Communion, the whole purpose of them going to Mass is not to worship the Lord. It's not to receive Bible teaching that will help them to be a better Christian or be closer to God. It's not a time to be challenged or encouraged. It is a time to receive the Eucharist or communion for them. They refer to this as Holy Mass or Holy Communion. It's one of the seven sacraments. For Catholics, they believe that they need to keep as many of the seven sacraments as possible. And when you die, if you're not fully cleansed, you'll go to a place called purgatory and you'll be basically paying for your sins until you can be purged of that and then actually go to heaven. There's a thousand and one things wrong with that, but first of all, let's say this, purgatory is not in the Bible anywhere. Secondly, if I ever have to purge myself of my own sins, I am toast. Thirdly, if Jesus Christ is not enough to purge my sins, why did he have to die? If I can pay for it, if I can purge myself, then his death is a joke. One of the false views that they have is what's referred to as transubstantiation, which is the bread and the cup literally turn to the flesh and blood of Jesus. We live in a society today which overuses the word literally. And so I want you to understand what it means. It means they actually believe that when you eat the bread, it turns into the body of Christ, that it turns into flesh. When you drink the cup, it is literally the blood of Christ. Again, we, we, people say, I literally died when I heard that. No, you didn't. You're still alive. That's not literally, right? That doesn't mean what you think it means. They literally believe that it becomes the blood and the body of Jesus Christ. From section 1333 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, at the heart of the Eucharistic celebration are the bread and the wine that by the words of Christ and the invocation of the Holy Spirit become Christ's body and blood. Not a symbol of, it literally is. And that when you go up to the priest and you open your mouth and he puts that, the wafer on your tongue, you, that, the moment that it hits your tongue, it turns into the body of Christ. And the second that you drink that cup, it turns into the blood of Christ. First of all, that's gross. Simple as that. Secondly, the Bible forbids the drinking of blood. In the Old Testament and the New, you can't do it. And so, again, to, to even ingest what would be called blood, it would not be biblical. Section 1376 goes on to say, by the consecration of the bread and the wine, there takes place a change of the whole substance, the bread into the substance of the body of our, our Christ our Lord, and the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. This change, the Holy Catholic Church, has fittingly and properly called transubstantiation. Look, the bread likely was bought at the Christian bookstore. It has no special power. The cup is getting poured out of a jug somewhere. It has no special power. It's not meant to be mystical or supernatural or magical. 
It's just meant to be a time to remember Jesus. Major doctrinal error here, the fact that they believe that communion cleanses sin. You're saved by your baptism and your baptism gives you the opportunity to be able to receive the Eucharist. If I went to a Catholic church this Sunday to go to Mass, I would not be allowed to receive the Eucharist because I've not been baptized. And so they say, baptism is the gateway to the Eucharist. And you cannot receive the Eucharist unless you've been baptized. Baptism washes your sins away, but the Eucharist continues to cleanse you from your sin. Section 1393, Holy Communion separates us from sin. The body of Christ we receive in Holy Communion is given up for us and the blood we drink is shed for the many forgiveness of sin. For this reason, the Eucharist cannot unite us to Christ without at the same time cleansing us, listen to this, cleansing us from past sins and preserving us from future sins. The Bible says in the book of 1 John, if I confess my sin, he is faithful and just to forgive me of my sin and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. You know what cleanses us from sin? Confession, repentance, the blood of Jesus Christ. But the idea that by taking a, a wafer and a, and a cup is gonna cleanse me of my sin, not only my past sin, but also my future sin, it's a protection for me against future sin. Again, why did Jesus have to die? If we can have a religious structure that apart from Jesus Christ cleanses us from our sin, it's not necessary. He goes on to say the sacrificial character of the Eucharist is manifested in the words of the institution. This is my body which is given for you. In the Eucharist, Christ gives us the very body which he gave up for us on the cross and the very blood which he poured out for many is the forgiveness of sin. So again, the idea that this literally becomes the blood and body of Jesus Christ as they take it. Again, they believe that communion can get others released from purgatory. Again, purgatory is not a real place. When you die, you stand before God in judgment for it's appointed unto God, uh, unto man once to die and after this, the judgment. You'll stand before God. He's gonna open a book called the book of life. If your name is there, you go to heaven. If your name's not there, you go to hell. Case closed. There's no deliberation time. You don't get to state your case. There's no scale that weighs your good versus your bad. Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ and repented of your sin? If so, your name's in the book. If not, you're on your own. And that is the payment for your sin. So there's no purgatory, first of all. That's why we as Bible-believing Christians don't say, may his soul rest in peace. We don't say that. You know why? Because his soul is either in, at peace with God in heaven or it's in judgment in hell. But by us saying, may he rest in peace, doesn't change anything at all. But for Catholics, they believe, may God receive his soul. I've been to a Catholic funeral before. And they say, may God receive his soul into his presence. Hey, God's either received or rejected by the time you and I get around to praying anything. This person's been dead for three days. They're either walking streets of gold with Jesus or they're in hell for all of eternity. And you and I sit around praying anything doesn't do anything for anybody. And so we as Bible-leading Christians don't say, may God rest his soul. May he rest in peace. May God have mercy on his soul. 
Those are all things that come from, from the idea that there's a middle ground that hopefully these people can get out of. Section 1371 says the Eucharistic sacrifice is also offered for the faithful departed who have died in Christ but are not yet wholly purified so that they may be able to enter into the light and peace of Christ by offering to God our supplications for those who have fallen asleep or have died. If they have sinned, we offer Christ's sacrifice for the sins of all so render favorable for them and for us and for the God who loves man. In other words, if Aunt Gertrude dies, we can go to Catholic Mass and receive the Eucharist as a way to help her get out of purgatory. We can also give money to the Catholic Church to get her out of purgatory. We can also light candles, light incense, pray around the clock, pray more, pray the rosary more, get other people to join in and pray in the rosary, and hopefully Aunt Gertrude can make it one day after she's paid for her sins. Nope. She's either in heaven or she's not. And she was trusting in a religious system to get her there. I can guarantee you, guarantee you, she's not there. And there ain't enough praying in the world to get her out. So again, the idea that we can receive communion to get people released from purgatory, not a biblical idea because purgatory itself is not. This one was the one that was most troubling for me. I've never actually heard it stated this way and it was surprising to me. It was the idea that communion or the Eucharist actually gives us spiritual strength. And again, I hadn't heard it if I hadn't read it with my own eyes out of the catechism of the catholic church i don't even know that i would have believed it but section 1392 says what material food produces in our bodily life holy communion wonderfully achieves in our spiritual life communion with the flesh of christ the flesh of a given life and giving life through the holy spirit preserves increases and renews the life of grace received at baptism so the eucharist is kind of a kickstart to get you back on the right track just like you would eat a meal to be physically strengthened, you can take the Eucharist to be spiritually strengthened. Hey, if you've gotten off track, you just need to come back and take communion. You'll get it kick-started back again. Hey, if you need strength for tomorrow, you just need to take the, the Eucharist and that'll jumpstart you spiritually to get you back on track. No. It's a time to remember Jesus. The other one that's troubling is the idea that communion is receiving Jesus Christ. <laughs> Section 1375, it's by the conversion of the bread and the wine into Christ's body and blood that Christ becomes present in the sacrament. The church fathers strongly affirm the faith of the church and the efficacy of the word of Christ and the action of the Holy Spirit to bring about this troubling word that they use, conversion. Communion equals conversion. Well, the Bible says that faith and repentance equal conversion. Jesus Christ brings about the change, not something I take myself. It's a problem. This is why it's critical for you and I, as we talk to other people about our faith, to use Bible words. I don't ask people, has there ever been a time where you turned it over to Jesus? Has there ever been a time where you invited Jesus in? Has there ever been a time where you received Jesus? Has there been a time in your life where you have been saved or born again? Because if you have not, Jesus says in John 3, 3, no man shall see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Have you been born again? Well, I'm not really sure what that means. Great, let me explain it to you. Hey, has there been a time in your life where you've been saved? Well, I remember as a kid, you know, the first time I took communion, oh, 
And again, this is for the reason why for Catholics, things like a baby's baptism is huge for them because now this child's sin has been washed away. Their first communion is huge for them because now they have the opportunity to, to take something every single day if they want to help them to be stronger, be closer, and to, to stay in a right relationship with God. And it becomes part of tradition. It's troubling. But I've asked Catholics before, hey, has there been a time in your life where you've received Christ as Savior? Oh yeah, I did this past Sunday when I went to Mass. I received Jesus. Oh no, 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 you didn't. No, I did. I went up and they placed the, the, the wafer on my tongue and I received Jesus at that moment. I took him into myself. No. Have you been saved or born again? That's critical because receiving communion is not the same as receiving Jesus. All of this goes back to one critical passage of Scripture. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. By grace are you saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. By grace, undeserved, unmerited favor. You see, grace and works are opposed to each other. They're opposites. You can't be saved by grace and saved by works. By grace are you saved through faith. Again, faith in Jesus Christ, repentance of my sins, that's what saves me. By grace you saved through faith. It's a gift of God. I don't work for it. I don't earn it. I don't say, uh, hey, Christian, I've got this pen for you. I'm going to give it to you as a gift. Just make sure you come back every Sunday because if you miss a Sunday, you've got to give it back. Is that a gift? No. He's got to get perfect attendance to keep it. I don't say, hey, I'm going to give you this pen, but I need 100 bucks for it. No, no, now he's paying for it. Hey, Christian, I'm going to give you this because you're a friend of mine, but if you stop being a friend of mine, you've got to give it back. Now it's contingent upon our friendship. Or I can say, Hey, Christian, here's this pen. It's yours. Do with it what you want. That's a gift. Hey, he could re-gift it. He could give it to, he could use it every single day. He could cherish it and hold on to it. He could use it as the only pen he'll ever use for the rest of his life. It doesn't matter to me because it's a gift that I give him. No strings attached. But if everybody sees Christian writing with this super cool pen that I have, and they know that Christian got this pen because of perfect church attendance, People are like, dude, did you see that guy with that pen? That's the perfect attendance pen from Pastor. And Christian, you think Christian's going to like throw that in the glove box of his truck? No, he's going to put it in a pocket where everybody can see it. Did you see this? Would you like to use it? You can't. I've got a second pen that you get to use. You don't get to use it. Now he can boast about it. Why? Because he's earned it. But the Bible says it's a gift, not of works, lest any man should boast about it. I can't brag about my salvation. You know why? Because I was in the slave labor of sin. And God set me free. He let me out of it. And I couldn't save myself if I wanted to. I was a hopeless sinner. And in the middle of the night, Jesus took me from my slave labor camp and he brought me into freedom. And the only thing that I had was him. And to this day, the only thing that I have is Jesus. I got nothing to brag about. No, no, no. It's not of works lest any man should boast. We talked last week about the frequency that we receive the Lord's Supper. The Bible doesn't tell us how often. The Catholic Church recommends that you do it at least weekly, if not daily. Daily? Yeah, because you've got to stay connected to the system. 
because you get out of the system and the system no longer works. And again, we don't have time to get into the corruption that's found in large religious systems, but it's a setup. I'm going to go so far as to say this, but any religious structure, any religion in the world that takes the focus off of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us and puts it on a church, an institution, or even an individual person, I want you to hear me on this, is satanic. Because the only person that wants you to believe in yourself or believe in a religious system other than Jesus is the devil. The only person that wants to cast doubt on whether or not you are actually loved and forgiven by God is the devil. The only person that wants to get you stuck on a hamster wheel where you feel like you gotta do more, do more, do more to hopefully get to heaven one day. The only person that wants you to believe that's the devil. Jesus says, I've came to give life and that they might have it more abundantly. John says, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have everlasting life even to them who believe on the name of Jesus. God wants us to know. I hope so, think so. So, I say all this to end with this. Again, more of a teachy message today than application. Here's the application to take away. There are people that you know and love. There are people on your street. There are people next door to you. There are people that you work with who don't know Jesus Christ, who are trusting in their religious works, trusting in their religious system to get to heaven. And we need to help them. I get probably three or four times a year, people will call the church and say, hey, uh, can I get baptized this afternoon? No, it doesn't work that way. If I come to the church and talk about baptism, I love to do that. When we sit down, we talk about who can be baptized. Well, you have to be saved. How do you get saved? Let's talk about that. I had a lady one time who came to our church. She was pregnant. And she said, um, when I have the baby, we want to have it baptized in the church. Could you do that for us? And I said, I'd love to. Let's talk about that. I'd love to baptize your baby, but I'm not going to. I'd love to talk to you about that. We don't baptize babies here because baptism for those who are saved. Have you been baptized? She said, well, I got baptized when I was a baby. Okay. Have you ever been born again? What does that mean? I'm glad you asked. We talked about it. Went through the gospel. She got saved, and she ended up getting biblically baptized. So we want to use this not as an opportunity to, ah, you're wrong. Oh, you're caught up in a corrupt system. We want to use this as a teaching opportunity. Many, many Catholics I've met don't even know what they believe or why they believe it. Just, it's what I was told. Many people have never read their catechism or their, their doctrinal statement. I have. And so, ask questions. Guide people to truth. Never, under any circumstances, use this as a weapon against people to hurt them, to put them down, to denigrate them in any way. Treat people with love, kindness, and respect. There's a young lady who had come to our church. We were probably 12 months old or so. Her husband was saved, and she was a Catholic, staunch Catholic. She said, I come to this church because it's what he wants to do. I'm willing to support him, whatever, whatever. And I said, has there been a time in your life where you've been saved or born again? And she said, well, I was baptized and confirmed and catechized and, and received communion for the first time here. And I didn't ask that. Have you been saved? And she said, I don't know what that means. Good. 
So I went through the gospel. And she says, so you mean like I don't ever have to go to confession again? Oh, no, the Bible says that you have a direct line to, to Jesus himself if you need to confess something. And when you confess, it's automatically forgiven. She said, well, what do you do about penance? I don't know if you can show me penance in the Bible. I'd be happy to guide you that direction, but the Bible says nothing about penance. Then if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Should I just repent and it's over? Yeah. Wow. And she said, does anybody else know this? <laughs> I said, that's why our church exists because we're trying to let everybody know this. And she said, that sounds like it would be such a relief. And I said, it can be. And that day she, she bowed her head and put her faith and trust in Jesus Christ as her Savior. She called her mom the next day. Mom, I got saved. I accepted Jesus as Savior. Let me tell you about it. She went through the gospel of their mom. And her mom said, sweetheart, we're Catholics because we're Filipino. That's what we do. And if, if you're not a Catholic, you're not a Filipino. If you're not a Filipino, you're not part of our family. I said, Mom, are you saying because I'm not a Catholic, I'm not part of our family? She goes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Well, that's exciting, isn't it? For those of you that can't hear at home, we just heard the, uh, the warning sign, and it is not 11.45 on a Monday. So uh, anyways, uh, we'll, get, we'll wrap this up quickly. So basically, her mom basically said, you know, you're no longer part of her family because you're not a Catholic. And she uh, was heartbroken by it, but she stood firm in her conviction to follow after Jesus. She got baptized here. She started discipleship. She was growing as a Christian. Her mom got cancer and was uh, really weeks away from passing away. And she called her mom, and she shared the gospel with her. Everybody's phone gets to go off now, too. She called her mom again, shared the gospel with him, and she said, you know what, your uncle came over the other day and shared this exact same story with me. And she said, I want you to know that I prayed and asked Jesus to save me. Her mom was going through aggressive chemo and radiation treatment and stuff like that. And there's a picture of her, her mom getting baptized in a, a pool wearing a turban because she had no hair because of the cancer treatment. She passed away a couple weeks after that. But she said, Pastor, I'm so thankful that I heard the gospel. I was able to share with my mom. My mom's in heaven now. And I know it. I don't think so. I'm not hoping she's there. I know that she's there, and I know I get to see my mom again one day. I'm so thankful I don't have to get stuck in my own performance. That's what the gospel does. And so there are people right now that are in slavery to sin and false religion, and you and I have the opportunity to liberate them, but we do it through love and kindness and, and truth. The other thing that we see from this that we can be a direct application to us today, too, is the Bible says in verse number 31, let a man so examine himself it's a good time to check in with yourself and see how you're doing. Pull over the road and say, hey, is there anything that's not right between me and God? Is there anything that I need to, to confess and make right with him? Now's a good time to do that. Don't let sin linger. The longer that it, it lingers, the more it destroys. So I want to challenge you with this thought. If there's somebody that you know that doesn't know Jesus, take time to pray for them, to share truth with them. Secondly, is there any area of your life that's not right that you need to make right with God? the most important thing. If you're here today and you do not know for sure that you're saved, you can be saved today. You don't have to sign up for a class. I'm thankful that you don't have to be baptized. You don't have to receive the Lord's Supper. You can just say, I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins. I believe he is the Savior of the world and I'm asking him to forgive me of my sins and to save me. And you can be saved today. You don't have to join a church. You don't have to have perfect attendance. You just have to say, I believe and I'm willing to turn from my sin and turn to Jesus. If you've never done that, today is your opportunity to do that.
But for those of us that, that know Jesus, let's live a life this week that is worthy of the sacrifice that he's made for us. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.